I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. In the light of Easter Sunday that we celebrate this morning, where we celebrate the victory of our Lord over death, we look at one of these is one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Very well-known verse because over the years this verse has been a source of comfort and strength for millions of Christians while they have grieved personal loss, the loss of loved ones, those who have gone through hard times and persecution. It is a wonderful declaration. It is, it is actually much more than just an assurance after we die or after loved ones have died, that we will meet them again. It's much more than that. In the narrower context of the Gospel of John, chapter 11 is actually a, a very pivotal chapter. Uh, it's, it's around about the, it is the, the middle of the, the Gospel of John, and it's, in a way it's a similar to an, an ascent up to a peak and there you see the final actions of Jesus which set the stage for his eventual arrest and crucifixion. And in a narrower context it is declared just before the raising of Lazarus back to life after he had been in the tomb for four days. So the what happened to Lazarus is in the context of the gospel and in the context of Jesus' life is, is, is foreshadowing his own resurrection. So what is this declaration about? How should we come to understand what it is about? First of all, it is about suffering. Verse 3 says, So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. In the village of Bethany, Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem, three kilometres. Here Jesus had some very good personal friends, Mary, Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus became very sick. His sisters sent word to notify their friend Jesus in the hope that he can come in time to his aid and heal him. When this happened, Jesus was in Perea, far away, a two-day journey from Bethany. Please note something important here, especially when one considers the spiritual supermarket that we live in now, there's so much misunderstanding. Some people keep preaching and saying that if you believe in Jesus, you're not going to get sick, you're going to have success, you're going to be a multimillionaire, all that other rubbish that goes on. It's called the prosperity gospel. 
I don't know where they get it from. It's not from the Bible. Three things I want to I want about this point. Firstly, Jesus was a friend. So being friends with Jesus did not exempt Lazarus from the tragedy, from the, the pain that he was going to undergo and eventual death. Secondly, it is somewhat perplexing to read that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was really sick, he deliberately stayed another two days. And thirdly, 2,000 years before mobile phones and all of that, Jesus, in fact, could have healed or raised Lazarus from a distance. He had already done this a couple of times with Gentiles. One was the centurion's servant and the other was the Syrophoenician's up north, the Syrophoenician's daughter outside of the, the territory of Israel. So it wasn't impossible for him. How many times in our lives have we wondered the never-ending question which is, you know, it, it hangs around us. Why God allows terrible things to happen? More than that, why does God even allow terrible things to happen to his own children? Those people of faith. What's even more perplexing sometimes is why does God delay his response to our prayers? I want an answer, I want a miracle now please. And when I compare myself with others, for the most part, I've been a good boy. I don't deserve this stuff. Just uh, on Facebook comes up, and this is not a, a Christian thing, obviously. Anthony Robbins, next seminar, he's coming to Australia. Anthony Robbins, you know, lifestyle guru and success and all that other stuff. It says, you deserve success. No, you don't. You deserve a better life. No, you don't. But that's the world and that, that idea has been transposed, it's been infected. Our churches was say, you deserve this. We deserve nothing. It's all grace. It's all a gift. So why does he delay? Uh, not even the disciples who were close to him and even not Jesus' friends understood what Jesus was all about here. And even though it might have appeared heartless, Christ had a plan. He was in control and when God is in control, he doesn't have to explain to us everything, the why, the how, the wherefores and sometimes we won't even understand. So he had a plan, he had a purpose through, through sickness, through pain and eventual death and God's ways are not our ways, the Bible tells us. 
but his ways are good. They're always good. They're perfect. And we cannot judge the goodness of God by today's experiences. John Piper gives these instructions to preachers and more preachers, I wish, would listen to this advice. And I quote, he says, We must preach so as to make suffering seem normal and purposeful and not surprising in this fallen age. The forces of American culture, he says, are almost all designed to build the opposite worldview in our people's minds. Maximise comfort, ease and security. Avoid all choices that might bring discomfort, trouble, difficulty, pain or suffering. End of quote. American culture, Australian culture, Western culture. Maximise comfort, ease the pain. For Mary and Martha, the sisters, I think it was the absence of Jesus at the time of death of Lazarus which, which plagued them. And, and this thought is expressed by both sisters, almost similar expression during Jesus' you know, extended absence. Lord, if only you had been here. If you had been here, this would not have happened. Verse 21 and verse 32. Now, it's quite tempting to to get into a theological or doctrinal debate when something like this happens. Uh, If you want to get into a theological or doctrinal debate, just read the book of Job. It goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter, this whole questioning of God's ways by Job and his misery, his suffering and his friends questioning him, questioning God and so it goes. Martha revealed her understanding of the resurrection as a doctrine shared by the Pharisees of the day because the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. It was the Sadducees who, the other party, the other crew who didn't believe in the resurrection. And and in a way she's expressing her own faith and saying it is correct and saying yes I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, that's in verse 24 and she's trying to deal with the pain so she's, she's asking questions, she's trying to understand where Jesus is coming from and Jesus knew that it wasn't the time nor the place to get into a theological debate about the whys and wherefores of God It's not the time to have a theological debate about the the principle of the resurrection. Jesus gently moves her faith from something abstract out there to a person, to himself. And it is this response to her words that Jesus... It's in this response that when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. More than a doctrine, more than theology, more than anything else, it's a person. It's me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? This question is not just 
asked of Martha and Mary is asked of us as well. Do you believe this? And notice what she says, yes Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. It's a very big statement right there. It's, it's about as true as you can possibly get. You are the Messiah, the promised one for the ages, for thousands of years we've been waiting. You are it, you are, Yes. But even after this declaration, you wonder whether she truly understood the implication of the declaration of what she was saying. In a a very beautiful way, I suppose, this passage informs us that God's purposes and his power are never divorced from his own plans for the ones he loves. For in verse 35... Jesus wept. He cried. And, and, and more than that, the, the context of the passage, it, it tells us that he was physically, emotionally upset, quite upset. They were not crocodile tears, if you get my drift. This verse is, is the shortest verse in the whole of the Bible, uh, but it's very poignant for a very good reason. Many believe that God is unmoved emotionally by the human condition. But Jesus came to earth to reveal God's heart to us. This is what God is like. We have a compassionate God. Compassion many times involves tears and grieving God grieves over his fallen creation. God is moved by the ugliness of sin and unbelief. How people can find every possible excuse under the sun not to believe in him when the whole thing is staring them right in the face and say, nah, I'm not going to believe it. In the original language, Don Carson says that he was outraged. Outraged at what? Outraged at the fact that this is not the way it was supposed to be. And yes, Jesus was also moved by the sorrow of those he loved. They were his friends. It was his love combined with power. And somebody with so much power and still moved to compassion and grief and saying, man, the completeness of God-man in Jesus Christ, right there. He was going to accomplish a miracle and yet he still cried. I have a cousin who's a, who's a surgeon in Paraguay. And uh, I was just talking to him and part of his practice when he goes into surgery is he actually prays before the person is going 
through anesthesia and all of that before they go under, says, do you want me to pray with you? That's his practice. Rather than trusting in his own ability, his own wisdom and all that stuff, I think it must give the patient, especially if that patient is a believer, to know that this person actually understands what I'm going through and all the uncertainty and everything else and actually submits himself to a higher power rather than trusting in his own ability. That has to give you a lot of confidence, doesn't it? Death. It's about death, this passage as well. Travelling by foot, the, the news would have taken at least two days to get to Berea, the, the place where Jesus was. So it's entirely possible that by the time the news had arrived to Jesus, that Jesus received the message that Lazarus was sick, that by the time Jesus received it, that Lazarus was already dead. And in fact, his statement already declares that. He's asleep and then he says, no, he's dead. And then he proceeded to stay two more days and tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead and for your sake I am glad I was not there. That doesn't sound very sensitive. Why? So that you may believe because belief is is something that we have to come to. It's beyond the tragedy, beyond easing the pain. We have to believe through the pain. We have to believe through the tragedy. We have to believe even through the injustice that God has got this under control. But let us go to him. I'm not going to do a remote healing over the phone type of thing. No, I'm actually going to get there. You probably think it's all going to be too late, but I'm going to get there. There was also this superstitious belief in Jewish circles that the soul of the deceased lingered around for three days after the person died. For three days. By the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus had been dead for four days. So this, he's also trying to deal with their own superstitions and everything else. Lazarus was dead dead, truly dead. So this declaration of Jesus is also about death for you cannot have a resurrection unless you actually have a death. For thousands of years the the absence of breath or a heartbeat was the best known sign of death caused this change when we were able to sustain breathing and heartbeat artificially through machines and all that. We now confirm death with the absence of brainwave activity over a 24-hour period. They measure it and if there is no activity in the brain then they are declared dead because dead people tend to stay dead. I read this on Facebook regarding the Easter season and I quote, around this time of year there are some 
that would have you believe that you were born worthless and deserving of death. I just want to affirm that you are not worthless, you are not born tainted, you do not deserve death and you certainly don't need saving. Instead, listen to the wisdom of Bill and Ted. For therein lies all you ever need. Be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. End of quote. Why do we do this? Why do we make light of even, you know, the most tragic of things like, like death? I think in, uh, in Africa, uh, one of the questions I asked and I was confirmed that to be true, that people, when somebody dies, there's actually a seven-day grieving period. It's not just, hey, it's 10 o'clock at the crematorium and that's it. And then you get on back to work and everything else. No, people are mourning and grieving for seven days. That is why in, in, in this context you can understand why these people were still hanging around after four days. They were still there. All that crowd and all that because they grieve for seven days. It's just people come and eat and they, they, re, they, they cry. Sometimes they actually hire professional criers to come and cry, to make it more of an experience. It actually happens in Africa, even today, as Hoda confirmed. Uh, because people are run out of tears and so they get others, they pay others to come and cry for them. So the whole thing is, is actually you know, trying to give some, a, a proper farewell to someone who has died. I, I actually think, you know, I, you might not agree with me, you probably don't agree with me with that, you know, a 45-minute, one-hour service at a crematorium is nearly not enough time to say goodbye to someone who you love for a very well, long time. But that's the way we do it in the West. Why do we try and, I suppose, dismiss it? Because, yeah, we fear death. And more than that, we actually try and deny it, that it's actually going to happen. Somehow, we, in the back of our mind, there's this thought that we're actually going to beat it somehow. It is unknown. The fear of the unknown. But for us Christians, it should not be so. In fact, when somebody dies in Christ, it's actually a celebration. There is the grief, but there is a celebration. So, we can sing, we can rejoice, we can sing the songs of hope. And you should hear some of these Africans singing. Their mother tongue and English and all this, just praising God for hours and hours, non-stop. Because death and life is, is just like intermingled together. It's, it's, it's a reality, they have to live with it every day. For us Christians, we should face death head on. We shouldn't deny it. The only thing we should deny is ourselves and carry the cross that Christ has given us. It is part of the process of how God deals with us. Unless we die to ourselves, to our sins, he cannot start his regenerating work in us. It cannot happen. And John 12, 24 says, I tell you the truth, 
unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Unless there is death, there cannot be a resurrection. So what is this about? It's also obviously about the resurrection. Though it is true that all will die someday, we know that this is not the end. And when he arrived, Jesus asked them to take away the stone of the entrance. At that moment, Martha, good old practical Martha said, but Lord, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Verse 39. Odour and decay are part of death. But death is a confirmation that death has actually occurred. It's not as if he's just asleep. It's not as if he's, you know, having his moment. And Jesus reminded her of the recent conversation. They just had this conversation and says, didn't I tell you? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And when they took away the stone, Jesus prayed a simple prayer verses 41 to 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. And then in a loud voice he called out, Lazarus, come out! And uh, someone has quite rightly said that if he didn't specify the name that all the dead people would have risen from the dead. That's why he specified the name Lazarus. Only you, Lazarus. Uh, the actual words are actually more descriptive. It's actually Lazarus, this way out, please. You know, exit this way, type of thing. Jesus is directing him the way out of the tomb. He's covered like a mummy, you know, wrapped up in, in all that. So his, his vision would have been blurred anyway. And then Jesus orders the whole thing to be removed. And Jesus backs up the I am statement with a, a miracle that proves what he says. What better way to prove that Jesus is the resurrection and the life than resurrecting a dead friend in front of so many witnesses. He cannot be denied. Raising Lazarus from the dead was Jesus' most powerful way of demonstrating that he is the Messiah, he is the anointed, he is the promised one. As he said all along, it is the confirmation so that they may believe. What better way to prove that he is the resurrection and the life than to, than to die on a Friday and be resurrected on a Sunday as proof so that you may believe. It's, it's, it's one thing to make this bold assertion, I am the resurrection and life, sounds great. It's another to back it up and back it up by raising the dead. And Jesus' declaration is also about life, life eternal one of the questions I asked uh, the tour guide when I was in Egypt was, what, why do they spend so much time and effort building these humongous pyramids 
just so they could bury, you know, one or two inside. Why all that effort? You know, so many years, so much work, sacrifice, hundreds of thousands of workers there. Why? Because for the Egyptians, the afterlife was infinitely more important than the present life. That was the answer. And that's of those who do not believe in our God. How much more for us as Christians? It's, it's actually true right there that this life is, is, is finishing but the afterlife is awaiting us. Living forever means living out the, the thought of eternity impacting our lives right now, changing our attitude, changing our hearts, meeting, meeting loved ones. Those who we have cherished in life will be able to meet again as long as they have their faith in Jesus Christ. That uh, the, the sorrow is, is only temporary. That because the Lord loves us, he will do, he has done all that he will ever do for us to glorify his name. Resurrection, you see, is more than just resuscitation. If somebody drowns in the beach or whatever, they try and bring the person back to life. That's called resuscitation. But resurrection is, is, is death. Is death beaten and life fully restored? wonder what type of questions Lazarus would have been asked about his four days of death. What was it like, Lazarus? Did you see a tunnel? Did you see a light? What was it like, man? Tell us. I think uh, maybe a more important and pertinent question would be what type of life Lazarus would have lived after his... It wasn't a near-death experience. Okay, let's get that straight. It was death. What would it have been like? Was his life transformed? It's, it's quite ironic that uh, some actually wanted to kill him even after he was brought back from the dead. Man, this guy can't die. Why are you wasting your time? Okay, why are we trying to kill him? Was his life different, changed? Did he have a different beat in his step? You know, did he have the stride of that man? I'm good, huh? Back, I'm back, yeah. The dude is back. Was he going to live a, a riskier life for Jesus, testifying and, and all that stuff? He's not going to be afraid anymore. I think so. I think so. Some people get a second chance and, you know, a bit like Kerry Packer. Remember when he died at Warwick Farm? He said, uh, I've got good news and I've got bad news. That, uh, good news is there is no hell and bad news is there is no heaven either. He made a statement like that, Kerry Packer. He's found out now exactly some may continue to ask whether there's life after death. 
I think a matter of concern as well for us is, is their life before death. Many people are just living their life as if, you know, they just can't wait to die because they've had enough of this life. We've spoken about suffering, about death, resurrection. We speak about life and purpose. Young men in Australia, young men in Australia are the, per capita, we have the highest rate of suicide anywhere in the world. Young men who are living with that purpose, it tells you that they, that even before they experience death, they're already experiencing death in their own lives. No purpose, no meaning. It's sad, isn't it? There are many people who live lives that are dull and purposeless. And this is the kind of life that many think is normal, but not really. Our life is more than just existing, more than just eating and sleeping. If we want to live lives that are full and meaningful, we need to come to the source of life. That day, not only Jesus said he was the resurrection, he also boldly boldly stated that he was the life. I am the resurrection and I am the life. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. A thief does not come to be your friend. I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. The full life. While there's still breath going in and out through your nostrils, have it to the full. And since we have this life and the next, we don't have to have it all now. As much as we can, we will live life, but the best is yet to come. The bonus. We can live in broken and ruined bodies for a time. We can endure injustice for a while. Just this morning I heard of an American guy who has been come out of jail after 45 years spending time in jail for being wrongly convicted. 45 years and coming out of jail now. Can you imagine what that would be like? Yes, we can endure poverty and hardship. We can face loneliness and heartache and pain for a season. Why? Because there is a second birth where there will be no more tears and no more pain in his presence. That is the promise. Is there life before death? I ask again. Any Christians who follow Christ as Lord would have to say, yes, a resounding yes. Otherwise, we would be living lives without purpose or meaning. And yes, through Christ, man's greatest enemy, death, is defeated by man's greatest friend, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. This is why Jesus never conducted a funeral in his presence because in his presence death fled. He is the resurrection, he is the life 
so all who are in him will never die. That is his promise. Let me leave you with a challenge. Is his life in you? Personally, I hope and pray that his life is in you. And his life can be in you by submitting your life to his. And submitting it to the Lord, our our Lord and Saviour. Let us pray.